listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast by Dr. T. Michael W. Halcom, Dr. Frederick J. Long, Dr. Mario Melendez, Dr. Jennifer Noonan, and J. M. Smith. Welcome and enjoy. Hello, I'd like to welcome you back to our Greek reading group working through the book of Ephesians. We stopped last time at 3-7, and in 3-1 through 7, we begin to see a pivot towards a middle. And Paul, in verse 7, is relating himself as a servant of the gospel. So this relative pronoun, ou, beginning verse 7, is going back to its antecedent, evangeliu, and it's possessive because it's possessive in relation to servant, a servant of which, of which I became. And he became this according to the gift of God's grace, which is then given further elaboration with this attributive participial clause, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Now, at this point, he pivots out and begins repeating reference to me, me, to me, the least of all the saints, was given, given, didomi, grace. So you have grace on either side, and then given, didomi, and then to me. And then that means that what you have in the middle is according to the working of his power. Well, here you have two terms that have to do with power. One is an inner working, and the other, dunamis. So we can look at this, display this as a chiasm. And in fact, at this point, he's going to pivot on out and then return to themes and topics earlier in chapter 3. So this is really the start of a chiasm. Uh, we're seeing the pivot point, and he's going to work his way back out. So the importance of chiasms is, uh, chiasm, is that you, uh, the center often is, is integral, either as an important point, a, a purpose, or a cause of the outer element. And certainly, we see that Paul is focusing on the working of God's power. So power is very important in Ephesians. And here, Paul's referring to this inner power that's working in him. And the thing is with this, this what he's stressing here about this power is that it's a gift of grace. Like, we cannot earn it. There's nothing that we can do to make that favor come upon us. In fact, he stresses that very point in, in verse 8. He says, to me, which is an emphatic pronoun form from ego, he, he could have just used me, but he uses emi, uh, to me, the least, <clears throat> the least of all the saints. So here, Paul is indicating I, I am the least deserving of this and I but I've been given this grace and it's according to the working of his power and so this is a real game changer because everyone has access 
to this grace. This grace is given to every believer. And so um, that's, and Paul is put on display as one who didn't deserve it and is considered least and yet receives it. So let's continue to work through the text here, 3, 8 and following. Um, so we're, we're just at the other side of the pivot. Now, this grace was given. Uh, this is um, has the demonstrative pronoun afte, and there's some focus on charis, this grace. Uh, afte brings focus to it. Um, it brings it into the foreground as a topic. This is what Paul is talking about, and that, that's why it's the grammatical subject. Now, we see following two infinitives, and uh, we are wondering how they're functioning in, in the sentence. Whenever you see an infinitive, you, you have some special construction that you have to consider. Now, the punctuation, there's just a comma there. Of course, it's not there originally, um, but the editors are marking some kind of pause. And so we need to consider how this infinitive, ev on elisiste, is functioning. And um, I mean, it literally means to preach the good news or to proclaim the good news. Then here we have a... <clears throat> A indirect, an indirect object, to the nations, dative plural, to the nations, the surpassing greatness, or the riches, the immeasurable riches, or wealth of Christ. And so, um, this is the direct object. This is this is what is being proclaimed. So you have a really interesting adjective. It's really um, quite ramped up and uh, unusual. So whenever you run across a very unusual uh, adjective or word, you should just kind of pause and just kind of look at it. You can see it means inscrutable, incomprehensible, fathomless. So it's a pretty rare adjective. In fact, it just occurs a couple times in the New Testament. Once in Romans 11.33, talking about God's wisdom <clears throat> and um, his, his judgment. And then here, in regard to Christ and his, his wealth. So to proclaim to the nations the unfathomable wealth of Christ and to illuminate in every way. And here we have pantas, and there's some doubt as to whether it's there. It's, it's missing in Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus. So those are fairly early witnesses, but it is found in P46, you can see there, and Sinaiticus and, and, and many other manuscripts. So probably there probably an accusative of reference to illuminate everything or in every respect in all ways probably because it's plural and then you have the content of that illumination in the form of a interrogative 
pronoun. So this is a, this is a starting an indirect question to illuminate in every res, in all respects what is the administration of the mystery which was revealed, which has been revealed from the ages in God who created all things. <clears throat> so this administration is what is being revealed. So the direct question would be, what is the economy or stewardship or administration? What is the what is the God doing in in the ages? That's the question. What is God up to? And in the gospel we get the illumination of what that is. Now this goes takes us back to chapter one, and I haven't answered the infinitive question yet. I'll come back to that. But if you go to chapter one, it culminates the opening comes to a a significant moment where uh, in the middle of in, in one ten where he says that God's good um, that that God has revealed to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ for the administration. Now there's that word again, of the fulfillment of the times. So this is what is revealed in the gospel. This is what Christ is doing. He is administering the fullness of the times, or I think better, the fulfillment of the times. Uh, and then we have this infinitive, which is given the content of what that looks like, namely that he's summing up or bringing together all things in the Christ. Okay, so that's what God is up to. And, and we can see that Christ is a part of this administration, this time of eschatological expectancy where he is overseeing the fulfillment of the times. Now, as I mentioned in that earlier video in our, in our Bible study, the fulfillment of the times is found in Jewish apocalyptic literature as a time of Gentile domination over Israel. It's, it's not a good time. And it's a time that uh, is coming. And so uh, that was expected that the Gentiles were going to gain the upper hand. And of course, this is not a good thing from a, a Jewish nationalistic perspective. But nevertheless, it's, it was taking place then and perhaps even now that, that and, and the point that Paul is making is that Jesus is overseeing that time. So even though he came to be the Messiah, he was a different kind of Messiah and he suffered death and was resurrected and now sits at God's right hand and he's overseeing this time period and it's a time period of mission right now it's a time period of going to the nations and proclaiming God's wisdom revealed in Christ and his purposes so this is what the gospel brings illumination to this is the mystery or the secret that now the gospel brings into the light and so Paul particularly has been tasked to bring illumination in this regard and proclaim the good news of the gospel to the nations and to bring illumination to what's happening right now.
So this brings us back then to 3, 8, and 9. These infinitives probably are infinitives of purpose. The grace was given to me in order to proclaim the gospel and to illuminate. Now, as far as purpose constructions go, they're not very marked. There are other ways that Paul could have um, ramped up the purpose idea here. <clears throat> so that's not his point at this point. And I think he may be downplaying that purpose because he's he's downplaying himself as as a part of that. Right? He's the least of all the saints. So by by keeping these purpose statements kind of ramped down, just using a bare infinitive, he is thereby not drawing attention to himself, but rather to the larger picture of what's going on. And so um, I think that's why he does it. Now, alternatively, he could have used an ina with the subjunctive. He doesn't do that. He could have used isto with the infinitive or prosto with the infinitive, and he doesn't do that. So instead, he just uses the bare infinitive, and I think he minimalizes this for the sake of, of rather keeping the focus on that content itself of what it consists rather than him as a recipient of grace to uh, proclaim this. Um, and it, it also might help convey that he's not the only one that's doing it. Um, while he has received this grace, so have others. And so he, he has a part and so do they in the announcement to the nations and to bring the illumination. Okay, so <clears throat> now this mystery may be better translated as a secret. Uh, mystery probably goes back to Daniel, this idea of musterion or the secret, and but it's not it's not a mystery anymore so much as it was a secret which is now out. The secret is out, and it's it can be known now. So uh, there may be some connection to mystery cult language. I think so because mystery cult also had to do with hidden things and secret things and illumination. And uh, apparently, we don't know much about the mystery cults because you're you weren't supposed to disclose that. That's part of the condition. But we we do know from certain sources that the rites seem to culminate with uh, the illumination of the deity that's being revered. At least that occurs in, in, in some cults. So illumination, phos, bringing a light, a light or a torch onto the image of the cult was a high point of, of the ceremony. In other words, it's a revealing of the deity. Well, so Paul, you can see that he's he's in this realm of this mystery cult, and he's using language that would have resonated in that context. Secrecy, mystery, being revealed, illumination, and then God's will and purposes and manifestation. Now we're going to see this again, this kind of language of illumination in chapter 5 where Paul talks about 
Christ shining on you, sleepers, time to wake up. And he's really talking about conversion right there. And again, I think it links to mystery, cult, languages, language. So all this means is that Paul is speaking in a way that people can understand. While it doesn't mean that he's equating conversion to Christ with mystery cults, he is saying there is some there are some similar elements, uh, some certain certain things that I can use to explain the nature of the gospel, and of course one but there are differences and those differences of course are are huge. I mean the difference has to do with the deity, like who is it that we're worshiping. The, the difference also has to do with who can be included, uh, and it's it's everybody. You know some of these cults uh, had had restrictions. This one did not, uh, you know, the, the Christianity does not, believing and following Christ does not. And the other, the other difference is that it's, it's made known. Like, it's not a secret anymore. Like, anyone can know it. And so it's, it's available to all. And so, um, all right. So it's, it has been hidden from the ages. That is this, the mystery, which is the mystery of the gospel. Uh, in, in, in God, who has created all things. So God is the one who has kept this hidden from the ages, but now it is made known. And I think this has to do with the fact that even uh, the contemporaries of Jesus didn't know what, um, what was going to be happening. And so if you look at all the different ways that Judaism was partitioned into different groups with different expectations, different hopes, there was, there was no clarity on what would happen and the kind of Messiah that God was going to send. So Paul is really just kind of stating that in, in, in ways now that uh, they can understand um, that, that now the gospel is known, even though it was hidden before. Um, and so, in verse 10, then as we go on, um, we, have a, we have an ena clause with the subjunctive. Uh, this is an aorist, passive, subjunctive, third, singular, uh, ena, in order that it would be made known. Now, we have to look for the subject. So, this ena um, is is the purpose of these proclamation of the good news and the illumination. So these are the means by which this making known is the end. And so we should be scanning for a subject. And, you know, if we follow English word order, we'd want the subject right there. But this is in English. This is, in fact, Greek. And so we then look for a nominative case element or constituent, and there it is, the wisdom of God. And then we have the many-sided or multifaceted wisdom of God. So this is actually the subject of the verb to make known, to be made known. So the manifold wisdom of God to be made known is the goal. So in order that God's wisdom would be made known, 
now to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms through the church. Wow. Okay. So, dia teis ecclesias is a genitive. A dia with the genitive is uh, through in terms of means. And so, this becomes the means of the making known. Now, uh, the time frame is now, and this contrasts with the former ages. Okay, what was hidden from the former ages now is made known. And who are the recipients? Well, the recipients of the making known are the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. This is the indirect, or the, yeah, the indirect object, the ones who are receiving this knowledge. Now, who are these entities? Well, first thing to notice is that they have each their own article. And I think they, this would help uh, suggest, imply, this implies that they're different entities. And people will often take them as referring to the same group um, and then say, well, they're in the heavenlies, whatever they are. So rulers in the heavenlies, authorities in the heavenlies. But I don't think so. In Paul, a case, a really strong case can be made that ruler, this root, um, is human scale. So archon, and here are arche, but this is human, human scale ruling. And so then exousios would be modified by entis epiranius in the heavenlies. So this is modifying exousias, exousias. So there's two groups that are given this knowledge. One is the ruler, our rulers, and two, it's the authorities in the heavenly realms. Now this goes back to 2.2, two, uh, which I mentioned in a previous study, where the Paul says, you used to walk according to the ruler of the authority of the air, which is a spirit. And so the authority of the air, those are genitives, and the air, uh, the, the spirit, is genitive. So there, there it is right there, the authority of the air, which is a spirit, the spirit. Notice that that spirit is not agreeing with ruler. Ruler is accusative, according to, kata with the accusative means according to the ruler. So interpreters, so I have an essay that explains, works through this, that interpreters will often conflate all these things together. And it's really confusing and people wonder what the heck does it refer to? Is air being personified? Well, I don't think so. I think you got two different entities. And one, this one is the emperor, the ruler. He used to live according to the ruler. And then somehow this ruler is in a genitive relationship of the authority of the air, and this authority is a spirit. And so what I began to find as I did deeper research and looked into air and what does air mean and, and how does that relate to authority, I began to find that the authority of the air is none other than Zeus, or Jupiter, who controls the things of the air. He 
has authority over them as Lord of the air. And, um, and guess what? This Jupiter Zeus stands above in relationship to the ruler. In fact, this is like a basic tenet of pagan political uh, philosophy is that all rule comes from Zeus. And uh, Jupiter stood behind the Roman emperor. Jupiter is the Roman name for Zeus. Um, even though there's maybe slight differences between them, uh, they're just different names of the same deity in most people's thinking. So Paul, I believe, is making reference to the emperor, the ruler, and the authority that is Jupiter, this pagan deity above him who controls the things of the air. That is rain, thunder, cloud, uh, lightning, these kinds of things are under the purview of, of Jupiter. So uh, I have an essay that it deals with that, that treats that, makes that case. And so here then, as we come back to verse 10, Paul is saying that the gospel and its illumination makes known to human scale and heavenly scale entities the multifold wisdom of God. Uh, and, and particularly that the means of that is to the church. That's how important the church is. The, that is, the assembled body of believers is that important because we are to display God's wisdom to rulers and authorities. That's how important it is that the church be um, properly functioning, <laughs> properly aligned. Um, and, and we have to consider that too, in terms of the, the scope of, of Ephesians, which I think really at this point, he's going to be talking about the church as a composite entity of all nations, representing all nations are, can, are, are to be represented in the church. Every tongue, tribe, nation, people. And this is the vision of Revelation that, that um, all these people, every representative will, will be worshiping God. And uh, this brings... Uh, glory to God and wisdom to God. Now, it's interesting to think about 310 in light of the hopes of the law, the purpose of the law given to Israel. Now, if you go to Deuteronomy, I think it's in chapter 4, uh, that the law was to reveal the wisdom of this people. And so now the gospel and particularly Jesus, is supposed to reveal the wisdom of God through the church. So there's a, there's a correspondence between what the purpose of the law and now that God's purposes in Christ, uh, that that is supposed to reveal God's wisdom in the world through the church. All right, well, there's a lot of deep uh, significance here uh, and, and, and meaning. Now, verse 11 adds um, another layer, which just affirms that this is according to the, the purpose of the ages. So what Paul is affirming here is that this is all a part of God's plan. And 
and actually like a broader eternal plan or a plan of the ages. Like this is not a plan B, as some schools of theology might have us wonder about the church, the church age, for example. No, 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 this was, this was what God was intending all along. So this is according to the purpose of the ages, which, and this purpose, this, this a, ain is a relative pronoun going back to prothesin, which purpose God made, so aorist active indicative third singular, God accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And look at all the appositional development there. So in Christ, that is Jesus, that is our Lord. So you have a piling up of this Christ folder. And this is particularly the point that Paul is making is that you know Christ alone is simply the anointed one. And in the Jewish understanding and the expectation, they were filling that slot, the, the, the Messiah folder, they were filling that with different understandings. Prophet, priest, king. Sometimes these were two different figures, maybe the three figures ring around. So they're, they're not knowing what this Messiah looks like entirely. Uh, those groups that, you know, some groups, for example, in the Psalms of Solomon, the pseudepigraphal work dated around 50 BC, they will... Um, those those 18 psalms, for example, culminate in chapter in Psalm 17 and 18 with a political understanding of that Messiah, that this Messiah is going to come and kick out the Romans and punish the evildoers in Israel. Okay, so what Paul is saying here is that this Christ folder is now populated by God's own revelation. God gets to fill in what this Messiah is, and he fills it in here in two ways. It's Jesus, he has a name, Jesus, and he is our Lord. And so this, this is very significant for us because there's other Lords being proclaimed. If you go to 1 Corinthians 8, there's other gods, other so-called Lords, but for us there's only one God and one Lord. And one of the other Lords being proclaimed is the Emperor increasingly in the 60s and beyond, uh, but also earlier, the emperor was identified as Lord. And so this is a very counter-imperial statement here. I'm not sure it's anti-imperial, but it's at least counter-imperial by proclaiming another Lord and the one Lord who sits above all rule, authority, kingship, and everything. So at the end of chapter 1, so Paul is making a trumping move here, and God has accomplished his purpose in the Messiah, who is Jesus, who is our Lord. So these are this is like a double appositional statement here. In whom, so moving on to chapter verse 12, and I'm going to see if we can finish through 13. In whom, going back to Christ, we have access. Uh, we have actually the boldness and the access in confidence through his faith. Wow, that's an interesting set of words here. Notice the consonants 
each of these words begins with a, 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 a P. Parasian, prosagogain, pepithesi, and pisteos. So you got four occurrences of this p, p sound, and I think that uh, achieves a kind of a, an oral emphasis. And what do these terms mean? Well, these are important terms, and I think they relate to different aspects of, of what we have. And this is what Paul is saying. This is what we have now, echomen. Echomen, we have parasia. Parasia is a boldness, a, a boldness in terms of, of speech. And this is what, in the book of Acts, the, um, the apostles and others are shown to have is a parasia. And so this is this this boldness should should characterize us. I mean, this is what we have. Not a boldness to be jerks, but a boldness in, in terms of that we belong, that that we have a message to proclaim, and 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 so we're gonna proclaim that message. And pros pros ogogain is access. Access, this has to do with royal access, access to the throne, access to God. We don't need a temple building anymore. We are God's temple space, and we have a hearing. God hears us. He's committed to us, and this word has to do with such access and approach. And, and both of these we can have in pepithesi, pepithesi, in confidence. So this is the manner. So we have this kind of confidence that allows us to be bold and to approach God. So bold in our proclamation and, and confident in our approach to God, our access to God. And all of this then is accomplished via Diates pisteos of tu, through his faithfulness, what Christ has achieved for us, if we take that as a subjective genitive. That is, if the of tu is the subject of the verbal idea, through his faithfulness, this is what he's achieved for us, and we can rest assured in that. It may, though, be an objective genitive. That is, that the avtu is the object of the verbal idea believe. So believing him, trusting him. So through the trust in him. And so this is a big debate. Does pistis Jesu uh, uh, here, pisteos avtu, does it mean faith in Christ or Christ's faithfulness? I think yes to that. Yes, I think both may be entailed in this construction. Both what Christ has done and both then then also our trust in him. All right. So this is what we now have. This is what we have in Christ. Therefore, verse 13, I ask 
So therefore I ask. Now this Theo is marking, um, cons I think, consecutive, but also uh, some continuity. So this, this is following, but there's also a continue, like an inference, but there's also continuation uh, suggested. So this is, this is drawing an inference, but it's, it's continuing uh, in uh, what he is saying. So therefore I ask, I am asking you, I ask, and then we, we have the content of that asking. Uh, now it's it's interesting that he sets it up with this asking. This is a meta comment, um, and I mean you can see how they're translating it. I pray. So um, yeah. So I mean, is he praying or is he asking them? Is he asking something from them, or is this is what he's praying to God? It's a bit interpretive to say he's praying. Uh, because he might also just be requesting of them. Iteo. And you can just see it simply means to ask. It is in the middle voice, so this is significant. So he's, he's asking um, something that can be helpful to him. Keep class. Uh, in a moment, I think. Oh, yeah. Is sorry, it at one? Get one? Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll finish it. No, 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 no it's fine. So this is this is what he's asking of them, and then the content is that they not lose heart. Now, really, this this verb enkakeo means to take evil in, and I really think it means to succumb to evil, to take evil in, in, in a sense of really being discouraged. Now, why would they be discouraged? Well, it's because of Paul's afflictions for their sake. I mean, this could be a point of feeling bad. And take a, taking evil in, Paul says, "Don't let that happen. This is, in fact, your glory. It's a glory that you're. I'm suffering for you because it means you're part of God's purposes in the world." Well, we'll pick up here next time. Thanks for joining us. Interested in growing your ancient language skills, but not sure where to start? Glow's House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glossa House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glossahouse.com today. Glossa House, language resources for the global community.